So I read a f- book a few years back, and it felt so important to me that I bought a copy as a gift for each of the graduating seniors in my class at Penn at the Annenberg School. The book was called Give and Take by Adam Grant. I didn't realize at the time that Adam was teaching just a few doors down from me on the Penn campus at Wharton. Why did I give them this book? Well, I wanted seniors to forget about their GPAs and think about the kind of person they wanted to be in the world. I wanted to use the book to do my fair share to build a world with more successful givers. Well, Adam Grant is my guest today. I feel really lucky that I can share some of his insights with you during the next 30 minutes or so. It was hard to pin down topics. Each of his books, including his new one due out in April, each of them is filled with insights about people and organizations, all of extraordinary value to my tribe of paid and unpaid leaders of nonprofits. We're going to focus on three topics today, and I promise to try at least to stay focused. One, what does a successful giver look like, especially in a nonprofit? They're in the giving business, right? How do they give and avoid burnout? Number two, so I, I just wrote this book about nonprofit leadership, and I was really interested in hearing about what compels Adam to write books. Now, unless you write something like Gone Girl or some crazy breakout book, money is not the object of the game. I'm interested to find out from Adam what is. And third, what authors and books would he recommend for those of us who are committed to the social sector, to repairing the world? Whether we're educators, people of faith, those who advocate for causes and communities, those who provide services to those who desperately need them. Seems like that should give us plenty to talk about. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Adam Grant has been Wharton's top-rated professor for five straight years. He's a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning and live more generous and creative lives. He has been recognized as one of the world's 25 most influential management thinkers and Fortune's 40 Under 40. He's the author of two New York Times bestselling books translated into 35 languages. Originals explores how individuals champion new ideas and leaders fight group think. It's a number one bestseller that was praised by J.J. Abrams and Richard Branson and Malcolm Gladwell. And then Give and Take, which I've mentioned, examines why helping others drives our success. And it was named one of the best books of 2013. And I'm anxious to hear about his third book, which is due out in April, called Option B. Adam, I'm really glad you've joined us today. Thrilled to be here, Joan. Thanks for having me. So, Adam, um, folks listening today are, for the most part, staff leaders or board leaders of nonprofits. They've committed themselves to a cause to pursue what we might assume is an altruistic path, professional path to help others, to change the world, to, in your your vernacular, to give. But it certainly doesn't mean that everyone who works with or at a nonprofit is a giver, as you describe it. I I assume you would agree with that. It's hard to disagree with that. (laughs) Right because givers are not everywhere. So I I would love for you to um, briefly describe the paradigm in your book. You know, you could, uh, I could describe it to somebody and they'd say, that's a whole book. You mean there are people who give and people who take and people who do the quid pro quo thing? Like that's a whole book? Well, it is a whole book. And I wondered if you might be able to sort of simply define the basic, describe the paradigm 
and then and then I'm going to push you to talk about successful giving and most specifically, um, you know, so what it looks like when you're sort of in the giving business. Yeah, so it's really interesting. You know, as an organizational psychologist, one of the things I first noticed when I got into this field is that when researchers were studying how people interacted with each other, they kept discovering the same styles in different domains of life, but they weren't talking to each other, so they didn't know about each other's work. So there were, you know, people studying organizations who found that, you know, some some employees were givers and leaders too, where you know they enjoyed sharing their knowledge freely and helping others and mentoring and and it was all about what can I do for you? And others were takers where they were constantly asking, what can you do for me? And most people professionally fell in the middle of that spectrum. And I ended up calling them matchers. You know, it's, it's the quid pro quo that you describe of right. I'll do something for you if you do something for me. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you had a separate group of researchers studying marriages, another studying friendships, and basically discovering the exact same differences in styles. And, you know, just as as there are frameworks to describe fundamental personality traits, um, our interactions make up a huge part of our lives and our success. And I felt like we needed a framework to better describe what are the motivations that people bring to the table? And what are the implications of being a giver, taker, or matcher for for both your success, but also the success of the group or the organization you belong to? So here we are. In your book, Adam, you talk about what makes a successful giver and how to avoid, and I'm, I'm going to come back to burnout later, but how to avoid being a doormat. Yeah. So look, I think the, the big mistake that people make when they care about being generous is they think that their own ambitions belong in the back burner and they don't huh. secure their oxygen mask before helping others, which is <laughs> good advice beyond an airplane, right? Yeah. So they try to help all the people all the time with all the requests, and that's a recipe to just to overextend yourself constantly. Successful givers say, look, I've got to be thoughtful about who I help, when I help, and how I help, because I have goals too, and I want to make sure I achieve those while helping others. And so they say, look, if somebody has a history or a reputation of selfish behavior, that person might be a taker, and I'm not going to be as generous there as I would if the person was a giver or a matcher. They block out time to get their own work done and have separate windows set aside to be helpful to others and try not to let the two overlap more often than than they might have energy for. And then they also try to align their giving with what they find energizing and where they can make unique contributions, as opposed to just being a jack of all trades. What we see with successful givers is they say, look, I have two or three ways of helping that I enjoy and excel at, and I'm going to focus on you know, offering to help in those ways. And that way, when I do it, it'll be more energizing than exhausting. And it also adds more value because it's not something that just anyone can, can share. So- Recognizing that when you're in the nonprofit business, you're usually in the business of sort of giving, right? And one of the significant challenges that nonprofit leaders have is prioritizing and saying no. And what you're suggesting is that a successful giver actually, in fact, has to prioritize her giving, correct? You said it perfectly. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I spend a lot of time with clients talking about the fact that if you say yes to everyone, you actually, uh, are very likely not to be working in pursuit of your mission. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a very, I mean, I, I love your paradigm and I think that it re- results in a lot of burnout 
in the nonprofit sector because people don't aren't able to say I have to give to this person like I want to give to this person because it's in the pursuit of my mission but this one it, this one I, I'm gonna have to say no to because right um, I'm also a big fan in addition to, to your book of, of the Jim Collins social sector book from good to great and uh, you and he both talk about the need to get the right people on the bus um, and in order to be a successful giver, you actually have to get the right people on the bus. Um, and you have a couple of ways to think about getting r the right people on the bus if you're a successful giver. You want to sort of take a crack at those? Yeah. So I would – it's funny, actually. Jim and I had a conversation about this a few months ago. And, you know, he, he talks a lot about the importance of selection and hiring. And – I, I think he's so on point to emphasize that because you know, it's really hard to shape a culture by fundamentally changing people's values and styles of interaction. Right. It's much easier to shape it by deciding who you let into the organization in the first place. And the data show pretty clearly that it's nice to have the right people on your bus, but it is essential to keep the wrong people off that bus. Right. The, the negative impact of a taker is often double to triple the positive impact of a giver. And so, you know, I've started thinking about this as, you know, one bad apple can spoil a barrel, but one good egg just does not make a dozen. I don't know what that means, but I hope you do, Joan. Uh, I don't know what it means. <laughs> I was hoping you did, actually. <laughs> no, I mean, look, takers wreak havoc, particularly in the social sector, because you have this incredibly important mission that people are supposed to be aligned toward. And if somebody really is pretty selfish, the moment the mission diverges from personal interests, you've really lost loyalty. And, you know, people start to become very cynical. They say, look, I thought this organization stood for one thing, but it's really all about, you know, people feeding their egos or, you know, building their status or, you know, serving their own interests as opposed to putting the mission first. And that, that can just be toxic to an organization and its culture. And pretty soon, your, your biggest stars who have the most opportunities elsewhere are the most likely to leave. Yeah. And even before that happens, they stop helping. Because they start to worry that, you know, it's it's going to be exploited, right? That if, if there are even a few takers lurking around, I can't be generous because they might take advantage of me. The um, it's 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 so interesting. So I ran a nonprofit for eight years. And when I reflect on the number of people that did not work out in the organization, whether they left of their own accord or not, um, it wasn't about whether they had the skills or experience to do the job. It was that they had actually come to the organization for the wrong reason, right? That they had, um, so in this case, you know, it was a, a, an LGBT advocacy organization, but it could be any cause-related thing. Some, sometimes people come because uh, they have like a, there's like, you know, the savior complex, or they feel like it's going to, that there, some people are kind of damaged goods and they feel like doing this kind of work will actually repair them. I mean, so it, it is about them, but I think in a nonprofit sector, I think it's there's a sort of added psychological component to the taking that is um, sometimes a little hard to pick up in the interview process, I think. I think you're right, and it's, it's a sad reality that a lot of people confuse sort of what it means to be selfish with what it means to be self-protective. Right. 
Um, so, you know, Mark Snyder did this brilliant set of studies on volunteers where he showed that people who got into volunteering, he was studying um, AIDS and HIV volunteers as, as one of his samples. He found that the people who got into it, um, in part because, you know, they were motivated to help others, but also in part because, you know, they wanted to develop skills that they could use in their careers. And, you know, they wanted to, to make sure that they were, you know, they were not just wallowing in their own troubles or despair. Um, they were actually more likely to sustain their service um, because they they had a personal reason to be invested in it. It wasn't just all sacrifice, right? It was, yeah, you know, this is this is beneficial to me too, um, which is very different from saying, you know, I'm trying to get in this because I want to get ahead, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping, you know, this this nonprofit will help me meet important people, right? Um, or it will it will catapult my career in some way because I can put this on my resume. I'm pretty sure there are quite a lot of board members in this universe that feel exactly that way. I'm sorry, I just threw up in my mouth. Keep going. <laughs> right? That's right. It's what do I want on my, why am I on this board? I'm on this board. Am I I'm on this board because I care deeply about the mission of this organization? Or am I on this board because I'm looking for my next gig and I heard that so-and-so is also on that board? Or I like the fact that it's on my CV. I had a client that had a huge board and a governance consultant came in and said, you should have a board that is about a third the size. They brought it to a vote to the board. And what do you think happened in that vote? The board voted against it. Well, of course they no. did. Of course they did. Shocking. <laughs> of course they voted against it because why would they want to vote themselves off the board? They weren't doing anything, but they got all the credit, right? So it's the the, the you know the, the 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 psychology of this is fascinating. I wanted to ask one more question, Adam, about give the right people on the bus. I thought you said, said something really really interesting about the role that matchers play in um, <clears throat> in guarding givers from takers. Can you describe that? Because it was a really interesting little kind of equation that I kind of really um, appreciated. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. And we should also talk about then, you know, how to how to help anyone who's a matcher get better at just weeding out the takers in the first place, uh, which I'm very curious to hear your perspective on. Um, I'm interviewing so, you, Adam. I just wanted to let you know that. Well, I, I reserve <laughs> the right to object and turn the tables. So, go there. Ahead. so there, go ahead. Um, so role so of matchers in successful if, giving. Yeah. If, I mean, if you're interviewing me, I'm in charge here. So <laughs> this is so, so much power. I'm not sure I can handle it, but anyway. Um, yeah. So look, the, the great thing about matchers is you don't want an organization of just givers. Givers tend to be too trusting. Um, they tend to see the best in everyone. And, and sometimes that's not the right way to operate. And that makes them more vulnerable to exploitation by takers. And in every organization, especially every nonprofit or social enterprise, you want a mix of givers and matchers. And the great thing about matchers is they believe in an eye for an eye, a just world. What goes around comes around. Mm-hmm. And when it doesn't, they know it's time to become the karma police, right? So <laughs> there's there's nothing a matcher hates more than seeing a taker act selfishly and get away with it. That's just that's a violation of justice. And so if you're a true matcher, when you meet a taker, you feel like it's your mission in life to just punish the heck out of that person. Interesting. And, and that way justice gets served. So, you know, some matchers will go out on a limb. They will deliberately feed takers false information to try to sabotage their success. Um, but most matchers choose a more subtle, deadly weapon, which is called gossip. And <laughs> it usually goes something like this. Hey, Joan, don't trust this guy. He's a selfish bastard. Right. And that makes it really hard for takers to sustain their success because most people professionally are matchers by default. 
And, you know, if you're a taker, you can't just take advantage of one person and then start over fresh in a new relationship. There's usually a matcher waiting in the wings to spread negative reputational information and protect everyone else from you. And so matchers really wield that sort of justice in a way that, that protects all of us. Um, so this is actually a really interesting way, uh, an interesting and different lens, diversity lens, isn't it? Is that you need the right people on the bus. We always talk about, you know, you want a diversity of perspectives, but in this situation, you, you wouldn't do, you wouldn't fare very well in a nonprofit organization that was filled with givers. You certainly wouldn't be served well by an organization that was filled with takers, um, that you actually need givers and matchers because you're inevitably going to make the mistake and hire a taker and you have to, and the organization has to be protected from that. Is that, do I have the dynamics of that right? Exactly. So let, let's talk about how to protect. So John, I have to ask in all the work you do with nonprofits, yes. how do you catch a taker in your interview process or in the selection process before it's too late? Oh, very good. Um, uh, it's about a deep dive into the why. Not to, not to sound like Simon's neck, but right, it starts with the why. Why do you want to come to work here? And I believe that a good interviewer can read authenticity. I do. And I also ask a question sort of, especially, you know, sort of what do the people in the world around you like especially if somebody's moved from the for-profit sector to the non-profit sector, especially if they're moving to a minority cause. So, for example, if I was, if I was interviewing for somebody to come work at an LGBT organization, I might say, you know, um, you you may be going to be a development associate here, or you're going to be, you know, a communications director. But in many many ways, you're about to just become an LGBT activist. And what will the people in your family chosen or otherwise how will what will they think about your taking a job and being labeled an activist and i find that to be a very interesting question to ask because i think it actually you know you can get people you can get a, ta a taker can a, a, a taker can f be a faker and fake you out big time on the why because they manage up really super well yep but if you can ask different kinds of questions um, then you get, you, you, sometimes you get really vacuous responses and sometimes you get, um, something that, that is a huge flag on the field. Like, yeah, you know, it's like, I don't think, I don't think is, they, is there a good example that comes to mind. Yeah. Sort of either, um, either it's, it start the answer starts with I, <laughs> like I want to make a difference in the world. Um, uh, it also could reflect with a nonchalance, frankly. I think that it, there's no nothing nonchalant about becoming an activist, whether you're act advocating for autistic kids or, you know, people with an illness or or kids in a school, for that matter. Right? There should be nothing nonchalant about the answer. And um, so I read between the lines. I look at nonverbals. I look at all of those things to try to get a sense of whether the why feels right to me. I like that a lot. It you know it reminds me, Joan, of, of one other thing that I've I've found fascinating in the the evidence on this, which is, you know, you you talk about this idea of you know, sort of catching them off guard, where it's not so easy to, for them to manage up or or give the right answer, and one of the the workarounds that psychologists have identified is that uh, you can ask people to predict the behavior of others, and 
oftentimes, <laughs> so like the, the classic question is like, what percent of people do you think steal at least $10 a month from their companies? <laughs> and you, you get their percentage and it turns out the higher your estimate that somebody else is a thief, the greater the odds that you are a thief. And I always tell people, like, if, if you catch anybody with an 80% or higher estimate, you should check your wallet immediately. <laughs> but, um, yeah, what's... right, 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 because it's a it's a transference thing, right? Exactly. People people tend to project their own motivations onto others. And so they're like, well, you know, a taker starts thinking through this question. It goes, well, I don't know, like, last week I stole $372. <laughs> like, 10 a month has to be common because takers always talk like that. Um, yes, of course, up... right. They end up with a really high estimate and, and givers are like, how do you even steal $10 from a company? Like how many pens do you have to take home? Right. And, you know, when, when you play that out, of course there are people who give high estimates, you know, that are not takers. And so you have to, to your point, you have to ask the why question and say, well, you know, wh why do you think that? How did you come up with that estimate? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there are lots of legitimate answers. Like, you know, it used to be my job to catch thieves or I worked <laughs> with a bunch of thieves, you know, in my, my former father, life. My father was a thief. Right. I come from a whole family of thieves. thieves. I'm the only one who wasn't. But <laughs> the the deadly answer is when somebody says, you know, I just believe that other people are fundamentally selfish. And that's code for I'm selfish. But when a taker thinks through this question, that actually seems to be the smart answer, right? Like right. I'm shrewd, I'm cautious, yep. right? I, I know that other people might be out to get you. Right, but if I hear that answer, I'm like, uh, you know what? Thanks for playing our game. We have some lovely <laughs> consolation prizes for you. <laughs> so I want to ask about something else too. Um, uh, I am just the biggest fan. I mean, I... I, I um, I'm probably older than you, and um, uh, so, so people ask me what my sort of what my consulting and coaching style is, and I say I feel a lot like Columbo, that I ask a lot of questions, right? And sometimes I know the answers, or I think I know the answers, but I um, I ask people for help. So help me help me understand this. Help me uh, f figure this out. Um, and, and then I let them play things back and it actually helps me to better understand what's actually going on rather than attempting to impose my own opinion on them. And you talk a lot about the importance of givers for asking for help. And I thought this was really, really interesting because way too often people think asking for help is about weakness. And, um, and, you know, I do a lot of board and staff retreats and things like that, and I, ha I often have to come up with icebreakers, which people hate, and they say they don't want them, but they really need them, and so I don't call them icebreakers. And you do this thing called the reciprocal ring, which I thought to myself, gee, that might be, make an interesting thing to do sometime with a group of people. So I'm asking about asking for help and the reciprocal ring, if you could talk about sort of both of them briefly. Yeah, so... I think that a lot of givers, this is yeah, actually in some ways, this is the biggest cause of giver burnout. They are afraid to ask for help. Right. Right. And this, this is true for a lot of people. They don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to embarrass themselves or look incompetent, right? They want to be self-reliant and they see help seeking as a sign of weakness. And then if you're a giver, add to all of those barriers. Also, I don't want to burden anyone. And I like to be on the giving end of every exchange. And it's, it's just a huge hurdle to ask for help. And yet there, there are two big problems with, with never asking. One is that, you know, you, you, we all need help sometimes and you just end up not being in a position to let other people support you and let them be givers, which, you know, is bad for you and really annoying to them if you have any givers in your life. Right. 
Um, and then the, the other problem is that the data actually show that 75 to 90 percent of all giving in organizations starts with a request. And so, you know, if, if you actually do need help and you don't ask, you know, there are lots of people who would be glad to contribute if only they knew who could benefit from their expertise and how. And so when, when givers don't ask, they're actually perpetuating a norm that people don't open up about their challenges, their problems, their goals, and it makes it harder for everyone then to ask for help and for everyone to step up and help each other. Well, so, and, be and before you go to the reciprocal ring, I, I, there's something really important in this in the nonprofit sector because... You know, as we know, people don't, you know, clearly they come to get paid, but they don't, they don't come for year-end bonuses. They come to have a voice. And, um, and so if you're a nonprofit leader and you don't ask for help or you don't ask for advice, then you're actually squashing the, one of the primary motivations people have to come work at a nonprofit, which is to have a voice, to be heard, to make a difference, right, for their voice to matter. And if you don't ask for help, right, their voices are silent. Exactly. And I mean, that's just, it's such a travesty, right? To have people in your life or, you know, in your work for that matter, who would be thrilled to help you um, if, if you ever admitted that you needed it, right? So, you know, I think that, that part of this is, is role modeling. If we can get more people to be comfortable making requests and asking for help, you know, that, that makes it safer for everyone. And it signals, look, this behavior is, you know, it's not a sign of weakness. It can be a sign of strength. But I also think we need structural mechanisms to make it easier. And my favorite one is, is called the reciprocity ring. So this is an exercise invented by Wayne and Cheryl Baker at Humax. And it started out when, when Wayne as a sociologist noticed that you know, requests were the drivers of most acts of giving and helping. And he thought, if you, know, if you want to get people to support each other more effectively, you need to get more requests, but you also need to gather then a diverse group of people who have different knowledge and networks. Right. And so th they designed this exercise where in the reciprocity ring, you gather a group of people you know, who don't necessarily know each other well, and you have them all make a request for something they want or need. So we've seen, you know, I, I want to see a Bengal tiger in the wild. Uh, I had in a class once, I had a student say, you know, my dream is to work at Six Flags, but strangely, Six Flags does not recruit at the Wharton School of Business. Does anyone know how to get my, <laughs> my foot in the door for, you know, an amusement park job? And the key is the requests have to be something that you want or need, but can't get on your own. Right. So, you know, meaningful, but requiring the support of others. And then you challenge everybody else in the group to use their knowledge and networks to, to try to pitch in. And in my experience, about 80% of the requests get fulfilled. It's, um, it's fascinating to watch because, you know, people at first think there's, there's no way I'm, you know, anybody in this room is going to be able to help me. And then they walk out of, you know, a group of, of 30 and there are three or four solid leads on this thing they've been dreaming about for years. And there, there are three things that I love about the exercise. One is that it really motivates the givers to ask. Because when everybody's making a request, it doesn't feel you know uncomfortable anymore. It's just now you're you're following the norm. Um, but I do find that the givers cheat. They ask on behalf of other people instead of themselves, and that's not really the point of the exercise. But if you need a gateway drug to get to the hard stuff of asking for yourself, so be it. <laughs> and then the the second benefit is that the takers give. Um, all the contributions are visible whether it's done you know, in a live room or online, when people make the requests, if you're volunteering, you know, everyone knows who's offering to help. And the takers are like, wow, I, I really don't want to get outed as a taker. 
And so Wayne and I actually found in a study that the takers on average tripled their contributions relative to what they normally give. Uh, so fa- taking them fasc- out of the shadows is great. That's totally fascinating. There's, there's something about this that is related to fundraising, isn't there? Like we always talk about the one number one reason that people don't give is because they're not asked. It's the number Ex- one. It's the number exactly. one reason, right? And that givers asking, right? So you know, you you know, I, I just wrote I wrote this um, the blog post that's going up tomorrow about this the word that I often hear from like grown up human beings on boards when I ask them to describe how they feel about the idea of sitting down and asking somebody for a five hundred dollar gift. Sometimes people use the word terrifying, when in fact, like, it's an act of giving to ask like it's part of being a giver to ask isn't it 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 has to be right to to ask with no expectation or obligation right but with you know with the assumption that there are other givers out there and you don't know whether this is the right request or not and whether they have the motivation and ability and opportunity to give but that to deprive to deprive anyone of that chance um is you know is i think unfortunate and, you know, it's funny because I think when when you go through this kind of exercise, so people often come out of the reciprocity ring and, you know, you, it's nice to get givers asking and, and takers giving, but the matchers are the ones who often walk away with the strongest reactions. What, what I hear so frequently is huh. you know, a version of, you know, like I, I, like I made a request and somebody helped me and then I was able to help somebody else. And I've realized that, you know, there's a time and a place to be a matcher, like when dealing with takers. Right. Um, like you want to hold them accountable for paying it back or paying it forward. But the rest of the time, it's really inefficient because, you know, the odds that the same person that I've helped can help me back are really low. And just trading favors like one-to-one is, is just not a smart way to live your life. And, you know, if I can invest in being more of a giver and, you know, encouraging more people in my network to operate that way, then we can all get more of the help that we need because when we have a request, we can go to the best expert or the most connected person as opposed to only being able to go to those people that we you know, helped in the past or expected to in the future, yeah. which I think is, is such a fascinating revelation. It is fascinating. Um, we are talking to the fascinating Adam Grant, an author, a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning and live more generous and creative lives. So I can't help myself, um, Adam. I, I I love asking people this question. If I had asked your family when you were about ten, and I'd said, "So what is that little Adam going to be when he grows up?" What would they have said? I have no idea. <laughs> Do you uh, know what you wanted to be when you were ten? N- I didn't have a clue. I think at that point I still thought I was going to be like a basketball player, uh-huh. uh, which, Our- as the shortest kid in my class, yeah, not, yeah. not likely. I, yep, I feel like that. I, I feel like I hear a lot of basketball player um, uh, aspirations from uh, shorter uh, people when I ask that question. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Um, so um, uh, I, I certainly can tell you that at the age of 10, if someone had said, you know, you're going to grow up and you're going to run a gay rights organization. I can pretty much tell you that wasn't on the table from my little Irish Catholic family. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, switching gears, I have two other things I promised listeners we would talk about. Um, your motivation to write um, has to be more than a sort of professorial obligation, although that may be a part of it for you. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of time to reflect on what propelled me to write a book. It takes a lot of time and energy, the process, the investment. Um, and I've actually been really, really fascinated to talk to someone else about, um, about their, their motivation. What prompts you to write a book? 
Oh, you know, this is, this is, this is an easy question. Unlike the last one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Part, part of the reason I became an organizational psychologist was I read a few books. Uh, one was influenced by Robert Cialdini. Uh, another was, uh, the tipping point by Gladwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was flow by, by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi and, uh, mindfulness by Ellen Linger. And the, the list could go on and on, but I, I read all of these, um, early in college and, you know, walked away just riveted by, by understanding human behavior better and wanting to take this knowledge that was collecting dust in journals and try to, you know, give it, give it away to people, right. To, to quote a, a great psychologist, George Miller. Um, I think the reason that we do social science is because we generate insights that are relevant to people's lives. Um, you know, not, not just for understanding, but also for impact. And, you know, I put, I put that, that initial inspiration aside when I got to grad school and then you know, I started doing research and, and focusing on, you know, contributing to academic knowledge and, and teaching. And when I got tenure, I, I kind of took a step back and said, you know, I have no excuse anymore to only communicate with other academics and <laughs> with the students in my own classroom. And, you know, as, as somebody who loves sharing knowledge, what if there was a way to share it more broadly? And, you know, that was that was sort of the the impetus for for giving it a whirl. So here we are. Yeah, I think that's uh, I, you know, I didn't I didn't feel like I had to write a book, I, but I did feel sort of propelled into it. I felt like, um, you know, my blog reaches quite a lot of people and this podcast reaches a lot of people. But you can't go quite as deep in, with either of those platforms as you can with a book. And um, and so it, 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 it felt like a not a compulsion that would that probably is a pejorative but it just felt it felt like it it, there was and and i also believed that in this particular situation i believed that there was a gap that i didn't see which was people think about people who get paid to run organizations and people who volunteer to lead boards as two very separate entities and that there isn't a book out there that's written for both cohorts and i like to think uh, i believe that a really fine nonprofit organization is like a twin engine jet and that these two engines have to work in tandem and that the board chair and the the staff leader are much more like um, co-pilots than they are like anything else. So I also felt like that just there was a kind of a gap out there. Um, I want one more gear change and you um, you actually uh, talked about this just a couple of minutes ago. Um, I subscribe to your monthly e-newsletter on work and psychology and I strongly recommend it to people. I, uh, it's called Granted, um, which you, I assume I can find, anybody can subscribe to it at adamgrant.com, right? Uh, adamgrant.net, sorry. Uh, so yes, adamgrant.net. And that'll be part of the episode notes that you'll find on my blog at joangary.com with two R's. Um, and you, uh, you attach really good articles. You also recommend really good books. Most recently, at your suggestion, I bought this book called Resonate, about creating powerful visual presentations, and it is ridiculously good. It's so awesome. Um, and um, I wonder if there is, um, a, you know, a book or two that that you would consider. Gee, if you're going to be a you know a nonprofit leader, you're going to you know run a nonprofit or be a board chair. You'd be foolish not to read. And do not say my book. You have to pick another one because you haven't read my book, even though it's on its way to you. Um, 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 what are these, what are the, what are for you, your sort of go-to leadership books? Oh, I have so many favorites. This is a little bit like choosing a favorite child, but (laughs) let me, uh, let me, let me see what I can do here. Um, 
I would say, you know, a lot of it depends on what you're, you're trying to understand. Um, I think, you know, I'll, I'll actually suggest one that's not out yet. Uh, it's called the culture code by Daniel Coyle. Okay. It's the, it's the book that I've been waiting for someone to write. And I sort of built it up into my mind as an extraordinary book. And it was even better than I expected. Nice. Um, so what Dan does is he tries to understand what makes a high performing and also you know, worth belonging to culture. And how do you build one? Uh, while you're waiting for that to come out in the fall, uh, his previous book, The Talent Code, was also really terrific. Huh, okay. Um, I'm also a big fan of, uh, gosh, it's so hard to choose. Um, I think Susan Cain's book, Quiet, has mm -hmm. had a big impact on a lot of people. It certainly has, it, and understandably so. It's really quite something. Beautifully written yep. and, you know, helps a lot of leaders think about how to work more effectively with introverts about the importance of listening over dominating the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess one other place that I would look is uh, Richard Hackman's book, Leading Teams. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard, Richard was a mentor of mine and I, I, would, I would say the world's leading expert on, on what makes a team tick. And he spent half a century studying them in all kinds of different settings and, and distilled what he'd learned in this book. And I, th I thought it was a great read and incredibly useful. There are, um, so I'll toss out um, two of them. Um, one, um, one book that I recommend a lot is a book called Difficult Conversations. Of course. Uh, that was literally the next one on my list. I was I, like, ah, uh, I already recommended three. <laughs> so I became a certified mediator, uh, honestly, because I saw so much uh, tension because of the sort of porous nature of the relationship between a board chair and an executive director. And um, so much of management and uh, building that kind of culture is about having really good, thoughtful conversations, and not all of them are easy. And so I really love that book. And then, you know, my book has a chapter solely devoted to storytelling, which is not something that's in most nonprofit leadership books. Um, because I actually believe it's if you take a credible messenger and you get them to tell the best, greatest, sticky story that you that you get a new stakeholder, whether that's a great staff member or board member or check or some combination thereof. Um, and I think that Howard Gardner's Changing Minds does a really nice job of talking about the power of storytelling and leadership. Um, so it's one of... Uh, I also make my students read that as well. Um, uh, so there's one one last book we we should talk about really briefly. Um, uh, tell me about your new book, Option B. Uh, it sounds like it might have some relevance for nonprofit leaders. Well, I hope it does. Uh, so yeah, Cheryl Sandberg and I have a new book coming out, Option B. It's about facing adversity and building resilience. And we try to tackle everything from how you deal with personal hardship and find the strength to overcome or sometimes persevere. And beyond that, we ask, what does it take to build a resilient workplace and a resilient community? And uh, I hope there will be some useful insights in there. It comes out in uh, late April, so stay tuned. Yeah, we will definitely stay tuned. Um, uh, you have to leave. Well, the last thing I want you to talk about, I had never heard this word before, nor its definition, and it feels like something really lovely to leave our listeners with um, from this conversation. Um, you talk about paranoia in the workplace, but you also talk about pronoia, the, 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 what we should aspire to have in our workplace and in our lives. Can you define it as your sort of, as we say, as, as we say farewell? 
Yeah, pronoia, uh, to quote my favorite psychologist, Brian Little, is the delusional belief that other people are plotting your well-being. <laughs> and, you know, look, I think the, the promise of more givers is that that's not a delusion, that's reality. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Um, Adam, I'm really, um, uh, really thankful for um, your giving this opportunity to my listeners this morning. And um, I really enjoyed our conversation. It was a pleasure. And I really appreciate all your thoughtfulness and your generosity, Joan. Thank you. You're very welcome. So I I feel... um, I feel very lucky to do what I do, and I feel particularly lucky today to have had a chance to chat with someone that I admire so much and to share him with you. Um, Please remember there are lots of links on my blog at joangary.com to purchase Adam's books, to point you to the books and the articles that Adam recommended. I strongly recommend his monthly newsletter. Um, And um, I have learned... I have learned that pre-orders are meaningful. So rush on over to Amazon and pre-order... Uh, pre-order Adam's new book with Sheryl Sandberg, uh, option B. Uh, Speaking of books and pre-orders, please don't hesitate to uh, pre-order a second book while you're over there on Amazon. My new book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, is available at a discount if you pre-order before launch date on March 6th. Thank you for joining me today. I'll talk with you next time. And until then, remember that even on the toughest and the messiest days, it's a privilege to be a nonprofit leader. Thanks very much and take care. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.